Hi, my name is Eric Forrest, and welcome to the Whiteboard Podcast. Whiteboard is a podcast that invites recent design grads to be candid with faculty on their time as a student. These are the conversations that profs and students should have but can't, exploring the intersecting needs of students, faculty, the education system, and the job market as a whole. Welcome to the Whiteboard Podcast. My guest today is Adam Rallo. Adam is a passionate design educator, teaching his part-time faculty in the York University Sheridan College Joint Program in Design. In 2018, the RGD named him as the inaugural winner of the Canadian Design Educator of the Year Award. A proud registered graphic designer, or RGD, and past president of the certification board. He's also an inclusive design scholar, currently completing his master's of design at OCAD University. A vocal proponent of accessible and inclusive user-centric design, Adam is dedicated to creating positive social impact through their interaction of design, pedagogy, and technology. He is the principal and founder of Catalyst Workshop, a Toronto-based design and development consultancy. As a designer, his diverse body of work has been awarded and presented in various publications, exhibitions, and institutions across North America, including Design Thinkers, IDEX, the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, and the Vancouver Art Gallery. Adam is also a professional speaker and writer on topics ranging from accessibility, design, education, inclusivity, entrepreneurship, and technology. And Adam spends whatever free time he has left pursuing his obsessions with music and video games. Adam, welcome. Thank you, Eric. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, man, what a, what a, what a career. I mean, there's so many reasons I can think to, to talk to you on this podcast, but the reason I was hoping you could join us today is because I had a lot of students say to me, you know, how do you price your work as a freelancer? How do you get clients as a freelancer? How do you get started as a freelancer? And you were just the first person who came to mind as someone who really understands that journey and who has built a career um, as as a freelancer and as we've seen as so much more. Okay. Thanks, Eric. I mean, I guess we'll start with, you, you know, what was it like right out of school for you? Did you jump into freelancing or did you do an internship and work for a bit? How did that go? I'm going to give you a bit of a long-winded story. I remember that morning of my first workshop class, a friend of mine who had graduated the year before from film uh, was working on the CBC news floor and called me to say a plane had just slammed into the World Trade Center. And as you can imagine, the class did not start as normal. Um, there was all sorts of you know conspiracy theory talk and all sorts of things going on, but people were emotionally um, upset and wanted to make sense of what it all meant. By the time I graduated, a number of my teachers who also had professional practices were no longer practicing. It was a terrible year economically and very quickly um, creative budgets uh, were one of the first things slashed. Uh, it, it was the worst I'd ever seen it until the lockdown. The lockdown has been much worse for students, much, much worse, but it, it was terrible. My program had a mandatory internship and I did one with Paul Sitch who had just started teaching in my program. And I actually sort of helped him out in his classes as the sort of lab tech. So I took that opportunity. Uh, it, it was fantastic, particularly because he's so different than me. Uh, he really got me to loosen up a bit and be more intuitive, try some different things. Once my internship was done, he hired me on. And then I stayed through the summer until I quit in uh, maybe September. At that point, I went to Ghana for three months. 
to live and work there, which is something I you know, promised myself I'd do once I paid off my student loans. And I was able to do that this summer right after I graduated through some miracles and smart investing. And uh, when I came back from Ghana, I was like a fish out of water. I suddenly felt like everything in my life was pointless. Like after, you know, working under the equator in the sun, um, dealing with people in such an immediate sort of way, um, my body felt good. You know, I was working with orphans and just, just every day felt good. And I came back and I didn't really know what I was doing. And um, it was kind of depressing. Um, it was post 9-11. There weren't jobs. And we were being told there just isn't jobs. No one's talking to anyone. And um, a couple of people who I lived in residence with at York got jobs in media. And they knew me as the guy in residence who was never in because he was always doing design stuff. And uh, as those people became successful, some of them needed a designer. And they would look me up as the design guy that they met in residence at York and uh, ask if I'd be interested. And um, that was it, basically. I never chose to freelance. I needed to find a way to pay the bills. I wanted to move to Toronto. I wanted to move in, um, be closer to my girlfriend who was in Toronto. I wanted to move out of my home. I didn't have money. And uh, people kept offering me like little gig work and things. And so I took it. I kept looking for a studio job. I wanted a mentor. Paul Sitch was an amazing mentor. I learned so much from him. Um, but I had a really difficult time uh, ever finding that. And uh, at the risk of prattling on um, for eight hours, I think I'll pause here, Eric, and let you uh, redirect the conversation, ask me a question, whatever you want to do, sir. Awesome. That's, uh, that's so great. I guess it's sort of cliche, but everyone does say, oh, you're going to remember where you were when um, planes crashed into the Twin Towers. And I guess it kind of finds a way of inserting itself. Well, I think it's also like everyone was somewhere. And those moments in life make a, you know, sensitize us to what we're doing, what we have. And so whatever we're doing suddenly takes on a new poignancy because, you know, we're alive. Yeah. We, yeah, hopefully. And I guess a lot of today's students are maybe going to look back at, you know, when they first heard, okay, you're going to, you guys are going to be locked down and the school year is going to be online. I feel like a lot of people are going to remember that, that moment. Yeah. So Adam goes out into the world and then he comes back to his, let's say to kind of pick up his life, not where he left off, but, you know, leave the life inside the life and start continuing the long term and has some friends who need design work. Mm -hmm. How did you grow that? You know, right. when you've done everything your friends need, then what? So here's sort of what happened next. I ended up getting part-time employment at an art gallery, um, being a sort of gallery assistant and doing all the graphic design, marketing, promotion sort of stuff. Um, it was an okay job, but I had, um, uh, the pay was very low and it was subsidized by a government apprenticeship program or something like that. And once that program was done, um, they wanted to pay me um, uh, an unacceptable amount. And so I negotiated with them. They could pay me the same amount as before, but I'd only come in two days a week. And I would do the same workload because I could do it faster. 
And the rest of the time, I could use the art gallery as my personal office and use the computer there, et cetera, uh, for freelance. Um, and that was the sort of start of things. I was already freelancing, but now I had this swanky art gallery where I could invite clients down to and have meetings there. Um, no problem. That was part of the agreement that we had. I would work through the night sometimes there on my computer there. I didn't have a Mac at the time. And there was a Mac there with my software. And then I was also still doing free projects on the side. I was working with my filmmaker friend, actually, uh, who had left the CBC by this point and was working in Australia. And uh, we had shot a vegetarian cooking show pilot for the um, Cooking Network. And I'd done all the motion graphics and so on. It was way too much work. I burned myself out and I was sort of working the nights there, working the evenings and days off for freelance and then working the rest at the gallery. And I ended up developing a pretty serious RSI in my hand. And uh, eventually I had to stop altogether really using a computer. I couldn't like cook food or feed myself sort of deal. RSI is a repetitive stress injury, yeah. And so I, um, I ended up deciding to quit my job there because I, I didn't love it and there was changes happening. And um, so far I kept landing on my feet and I had some money put aside. And uh, I, I think I just did my own thing, um, maybe a little bit of freelance, but really not much of anything as I was trying to mend my hand. And while I was doing that, uh, a friend of mine, a person who I um, did almost all my fourth year work with, um, uh, sh she contacted me and said, we need a designer at uh, where she was working. It was an architecture engineering firm. She said, look, we, they need someone yesterday because we're missing out on proposals. So like, you know, go, go in, ask for some good money if you want to come in. So I, uh, I met with them. I asked for a whole bunch of money. They sort of laughed and said, no, it's okay. Then, then a couple of weeks later, they got back to me and were sort of like, could you come down and start tomorrow? We'll give you a whole bunch of money. So huh. I, I, I started there as I think the highest paid designer, despite being entry level. Uh, had, had a fun time there. It became incredibly clear that I, didn't, it wasn't, I was not cut out for it at all. First, there was no mentor figure. Secondly, I was, you know, getting myself in a little bit of trouble with my hand and so on because I was still freelancing in the evening and working there. Um, but when I quit, I made some resolutions. Um, I, I felt like I'd been going from job to job that I didn't like while I was doing my own stuff. And I felt like I was incompetent doing my own stuff. I was an imposter. I was just trying to scrape by. I felt like at the gallery, I had no mentor there. I had no mentor. And I had so many criticisms of how places were being run and, and nothing seemed right to me and I didn't like it. And I made a decision when I quit that job, which is just sort of fuck it. If I'm going to work for an incompetent boss, I'm going to be that incompetent boss from now on. <laughs> so I met an accountant through the RGD. I incorporated. I got a new phone line back when those were a thing. And I started answering the phone with we, as in the corporate we. And I started yeah. treating it completely differently. On it was ostensibly the exact same thing. It was the same clients. It was the same everything. But suddenly, I had it in my head that uh, this is a corporation. Eventually, that sort of snowballed towards sometimes I'd be hiring freelancers here and there. And it got to a point where I was like, should I be looking at office space? I, I was in a house at this point. I had a lot of space. But once I got into an office space, it, it seemed like, wow, was this overdue? Um, it was it was nice. I slept better at night because I was always kind of working at home in the day, but also kind of working in the evening. Whereas with an office, I'd go in, I'd work, uh, I'd get it done, and then I'd come home and I'd do something else. And hmm. 
that went well. And I, I, I went in on a lease with some other people, some strangers I met on Craigslist. The, uh, the folks you went in with, were they partners in the design or were they completely unrelated, just share the space? Nope, they were unrelated. It was mainly an OCAD grad and then some friends and who were you know, starting out in business themselves. Literally, like almost every project I ever did, I could trace back to say, well, that was a recommend from that person who was a recommend from that person who um, was friends with that guy who lived on my floor in residence in third year. Um, it's utterly ridiculous. I thought that my portfolio would matter when I got into the real world. Um, but no, more than anything else, uh, relationships and reputations mattered. And that was enough. But you know, I got opportunities. I made good on those opportunities. And that was enough to snowball that into a career of work, a modest studio with a few employees. Um, yeah. You asked me if I'd be willing to talk about how to build for freelance, etc. And I a bunch of ways to think about billing as a freelancer, particularly as a student, like just sort of starting out. Um, I don't know, maybe five different ways. And I'm not really advocating one or the other. I just sort of, this is how I think. And these are the possibilities I've seen. Figure out what the heck does it cost to produce this thing that the client wants or needs, and then adding a markup to it. And overwhelmingly, that's how I ran my business. Um, there's there's lots of arguments against it, but it just it always made the most sense to me. And I kept coming back to it. The most difficult thing about that is the self-knowledge of how long does this project take? How many people, how many hours for this thing that you haven't even fully specced out yet? You're un, un, without a doubt just going to be unknowns that you don't know. It is a difficult skill. And the way I recommend everyone starts to learn how to do that is you keep time logs when you, when you do design work. Whenever you're doing design work, you should be doing this as an undergrad or, you know, or a college student and all the same. And uh, you, you keep timesheets and you log how much you spend on the different phases of your design process, however you, you see your design process to be. That's your sort of bedrock there, and you'll start to gain self-knowledge um, and start to um, realize how th long things take you. Now, to take that to the next level, what I suggest people do is they start estimating everything they do. I mean, if you want to go you know, do some Photoshop work on some you know, fun project for yourself, before you do that, sit down and do an estimate of how long it's going to take you, and then record the time and see how close you are. Um, that way you can start to also develop a sort of course correction for yourself um, and understanding where you might be overly optimistic, uh, where you might be overly pessimistic in your estimating. And uh, Adam, Adam, this is a practice. This is a practice that can start in college, can't it? Or should start in college. It absolutely should. Anyone who, anyone who could be pricing design in this way and wants a career in it, I would suggest doing this so you can... Um, start to learn yourself um, as far as how do you work as a machine? How long does it take for you to get things done? Now, there's a couple variables in there. And the biggest variable is for like a, you know, a recent graduate is, well, what, what's my pay rate? Like, okay, I figured out that it's going to be a 24-hour job, but like, what is my pay rate? I can't answer that for anyone, but I, I will say this. Give yourself 
a fixed pay rate. Do not let it vary whatsoever. From time to time, give yourself a raise when you think that you deserve a raise. Um, but treat yourself as an employee of yourself. And yes, I know how awkward that sounds. Uh, and this goes back to uh, when I incorporated. And um, uh, I found these things really helpful. And I've been in client meetings before I had a fixed pay rate where we'd be talking about things and subjects of money or time would come up. And I would find that I'd, I was kind of wishy-washy sometimes. And I could see it sort of draining the confidence from the potential client. As soon as I convinced myself that this is what you get paid, that's what you're worth, that's what you do, and I could succinctly say yay or nay or can't cost any less than this because I need this many hours and I know what I get paid, I, I found the confidence actually went up in my potential clients. Um, you have to understand as designers, to some extent, we're selling magic beans to business people. Uh, and particularly if you're a young designer, a recent graduate, that's an even bigger leap of faith they need to take on you. So you really want to give them confidence in how you conduct yourself um, with giving them certainty, with giving them fixed numbers, with um, giving them cost control and things that they can believe in. And if it seems like your numbers are just kind of pulled out of your derriere and shift around conversation to conversation, that doesn't bode well, in my opinion. Um, now, how do you decide how much you should be paid? I actually do have a lot I want to say to that, but I, I just wanted to continue a bit more on this vein of sort of um, cost-based billing, which is profit. You need profit. <laughs> you absolutely need profit, okay? Um, there's all sorts of different theories as to how much you need or should be, but like a good starting point is just double it. Just say, okay, uh, I need to take twice as much in. I'm not saying that's accurate at all. I'm just saying start there. Do you mean um, double your double what you think you want as a profit, or do you mean double the rate and keep the half as profit? I mean, let's say uh, let's say you figured out that you know based on my hourly rate, the number of hours I put in, the number of color prints I'm going to need to make, and all that sort of thing. You're like, all right, this job's going to cost like. Two thousand uh, dollars. All right, then propose a budget of four thousand. Got it. And keep two grand. Keep two grand for yourself. I, I just want to point something out that doesn't come second nature to some people. You're pricing in printing, and a lot of students I find ask, "Should I handle printing?" Or they don't want to handle printing. Two schools of thought there. First one: don't handle printing. Um, don't do anything that could introduce weak links in your process. So basically, if, if you handling printing might screw up the job or might make you get stiffed for more money and put you in a position of risk, don't do it. Second school of thought, definitely handle printing. If they're going to go to some idiot printer who's going to completely destroy your project and they're, they're, then they're, they're going to come back to you and be like, this is terrible. What were you, what were you thinking? You better as heck handle it. Um, don't let them screw it up on you. Work with trusted service providers who um, you have faith in. And um, yeah, and I, I want to talk a little bit more to, to both of those. The most important thing when you're not handling printing, the most important reason not to do it is you don't want to find yourself financially brokering 
steps of the process and taking on undue risk. That's really the biggest problem there. Maybe just unpack that, Adam. So you mean what can happen is the client has only paid you partially, you pay the printer, and then something happens, or maybe the client, usually people are not dishonest, but maybe the client doesn't like the work, and now what? You've paid the printer. Exactly, yeah. And it's one thing to say, you know, to end up burning a bunch of your hours by client who, you know, ends up screwing you over. It's another thing to have gone ahead and, you know, put money down to cover printing bills, et cetera, that you, you won't recoup. It's, um, it's just a much higher risk. That being said, I love my printers. I have had, I've worked with, you know, a few different printers and I've always keep going back to the same people whenever I can. And, uh, I'd always send them a Christmas gift, always try to, you know, go above and beyond to treat them well. And then every once in a while, um, a client, you know, doesn't give you enough notice and, and they'll move other clients' jobs around to get yours on press first. Do you have any favorite printers who you want to maybe give some airtime to? Or? If I was just starting out, I would not call those printers or recommend those printers. I mean, I recommend those because because I have my relationship with them that I've built up over the years. They're not necessarily yeah. the best choice for today. But for me, they're, they're who would make sense, which is why I'm not going to you know, drop any names or make any endorsements. Because it depends on the scale and the timeline and the, the, the complexity. Like if my friend were to be like, hey, I'm starting a, um, a side business. I need business cards. Honestly, I'm just going to run them through Vistaprint. You know, it's going to be like 50 bucks and it's going to go straight to his door. And, you know, that it's just I'll broker that. I'm not worried. Like even if the money doesn't come, you know, it doesn't really... Um, so it really depends on at least the scope and at least relate the relationship and, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to wrap up on what I was saying about, uh, sort of cost-based billing. And, and I suggested that, you know, as a starting point, you could double what the cost is going to be and say, okay, that's my profit margin. Um, that's a pretty high profit margin to tell you the truth. That's, that's ridiculously high. The reason I said double is for the exact reason that you brought up right away which is because you're starting out and you probably didn't think about a whole bunch of things. That's why I would suggest that. Some people actually suggest um, more than that, like triple it sort of thing, and maybe that works for you. Um, but I'm just saying as a starting out point, um, the most important thing I want to impress on you there is make sure you have budget for what you don't realize you don't know. Mm. And without a doubt, there's a lot of those, and you're going to have jobs that you're going to lose money on. and that means you're also going to have jobs that you make disproportionate amounts on, hopefully, if you're doing this right. The next thing is to be investing in your business. Even if it's just you, you're going to have expenses. Your, your website, uh, any advertising, printing business cards, and hopefully better stuff than just that. And start putting money into that business. Start having a business budget. Um, you're not just paying yourself. Um, your business has to have money in order to be able to do things, whether it's buying a new piece of equipment or, or whatever that is. Um, so that's another reason that you, that you need profit beyond just you know hand to mouth. You don't want to be living that way. Mm -hmm. There's not always a free Mac in the art gallery. The, yeah, and that and that Mac came with. Um, I, you know, I, I I'm a bit of an older guy. The minimum wage was six dollars and eighty five cents back then. Um, to give you some perspective, I was being paid spit, quite frankly. Uh, yeah. Really, I was being paid in facilities and equipment. Which actually, it's probably, probably pretty, pretty
pretty decent given the markup on, well, not markup. You and I will have a talk one day about Apple. Let's not get into it. That's, yeah, you, well, yeah, that's not, yeah, there's um, no, no place for that here. But you talked about a reserve and actually my, my girlfriend's a project manager and <laughs> she says like this sort of the PMP school of thinking is you get your budget and then you kind of act like uh, I think it's 10 or 15% almost doesn't exist. And you put that in a reserve budget. Yeah. And I don't know if the number is the same in design. I just want to get out there that it's something that exists in the, in the whole world of project management, not kind of a good idea to have uh have a category in your budgeting that's just unknown not really you're not using that money for anything because you'll end up needing it still yeah mm -hmm. okay so we've we've thought about like what will the market bear how much money do they have like what how much can, how much can i get in, in these opportunities you know we, we've talked about well what is it worth to them what is the value uh so on we talked about well, what's it what's it going to cost me what's it going to cost me in time energy equipment etc the next one's kind of related to that, and it's related to everything, which is how much do you need to be paid mm -hmm. in order to do a good job and feel good about yourself? Mm -hmm. And this is really, really important. I have taken budgets that were too low and found myself gritting my teeth when they'd ask for one round, more round of changes, et cetera. And then I've had other jobs where I we, um, had an excellent budget. And when they ask for some extras, you, you, you just go above and beyond and you make them extra happy. You don't ever want to be working for a budget that's so low that it's going to affect your judgment and how you feel about the job because you'll do worse work. You have to be paid enough so that money is never an impediment. And this is really, really important because your reputation is, in my experience, is really going to be able to pay itself forward in the long run. Um, people talk to people and someone will take someone else saying, hey, you should work with that guy. That guy's a good guy. He did good work for us. Uh, they'll take that any day over a fancy portfolio. You said earlier, we're selling magic beans. Do you want to tell me a little bit more what you meant by that? For most businesses that I deal with, you know, when, when they order... Uh, a hundred, you know, cast aluminum Navy style chairs for their restaurant. They receive more or less what they expect. There's maybe some variance in quality, etc. Um, and it's a tangible thing that they understand. When they have their lawyer um, do their taxes, they understand the lawyer has gone to fancy accounting school, has some legal obligation towards them, and hopefully they got a good lawyer and everything's going to go well. And that's. Not the lawyer, sorry, the accountant, and, and usually that, that works out just fine. When it comes to hiring a designer, it's usually something that sort of comes out of left field, that they suddenly need a designer for something, and they're not going to get any hard goods out of it. Um, they're going to get some pictures that they suspect their teenage son or daughter could have done better. We're, we're really an industry where we have to sell process and reputation because we don't really have hard goods to sell. And the goods that we do sell very often to to business people, and they look at it, they're they're kind of mystified. They're like, why would a logo cost that much? Like, you're gonna go draw it on your computer, isn't your computer do half the work? Like, why would I pay so much money for it? And so I, I often use this phrase saying, like, we're magic bean salesmen, just to to sort of uh, exaggerate the point that we are selling something less tangible and and maybe perceived as less valuable or higher risk to businesses. And it doesn't help that our industry is often, you know, filled with young designers, which is 
fine, um, except, you know, it, it's not like they go to uh, the equivalent of the Bank of Montreal and hire a designer from there. They're dealing with smaller operations, things they don't quite understand. And perhaps most importantly, they're buying a service that very often they personally do not feel competent at buying. They don't have confidence that they can judge what good design is or bad design beyond their own personal opinion. They have doubt. They don't have the same trust that they might have from like a certified accountant, for instance. I think this is something that's not, maybe not talked about enough in colleges or, or anywhere, really. I always say, you said risk, and risk risk assessment is actually the model that I've always understood it through, or the lens that I've understood this problem through. Whether you're a freelance designer or maybe you're even an accounts person at an agency, you know, so you're dealing with the with the client looking to hire you. They are using risk evaluations, probably the same risk evaluations that they would use to pick a chair or to pick a lawyer or to pick an accountant. And those simply aren't, they don't fit, they don't map onto the design profession because, as you say, it is a bit of magic beans and they're hiring you without seeing the product and they're not necessarily clear on what the value is. So they're looking at maybe your reputation in the industry. They're looking at what other sorts of clients you have worked with. Do I look like those clients? Do I like the way those clients look? It could be like what what sports teams you like. Like it's so, it gets so out there uh, when you're just this person looking to do design for a company who doesn't know how to evaluate design. They turn to other metrics and you you have to learn how to, anticipate those metrics and demonstrate them if you want that job. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I have no doubt that I got, you know, much, a, a lot of the early work in particular, I got from people who knew me in, in, in a residence, they felt like they could trust me and that I wouldn't let them down. Um, and very often what we perceive as cronyism or nepotism really does come down to um, avoiding risk. And I'm not saying that those other things don't exist and that they're not negative, but I, I do think protecting oneself from risk is, is really a, a, oh, hi, Eric, you said it so well. I, I think it's just an underrated or underemphasized part of understanding business relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially in the design world, um, because, the, because I think putting together this idea of risk with the magic beans, I never had the magic bean part, Adam. And now that you've said it, it's like, yes. That's why the risk assessments don't map on because I have a magic bean. Evaluate it. Evaluate the value of the magic bean. You can't. Yeah. No HR team, no job description, no list of software um, capabilities. Like none of that can do it. So I guess the question is how, how in the past have I, and I mean, we've said, we've said friends and relationships, um, past clients, similar clients, uh, those things are really important in the risk evaluation models of magic bean buyers. Another thing is if you can mitigate the perception of risk, and by that I mean if you can appear less risky to a client, you're worth more money to them. Actually, literally, to, in my view, that's literally what it translates into. The less risky you are, the more money you're worth. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to speak to just this general topic here of I've never been good at digging up new work. I've been lucky. But 
I have been good with proposals and a lot of other aspects of business. And I can give some, some advice on how to address some of these things during the proposal phase. Be consistent in your language that you are selling a process, not a product, a process. A product will be produced from this process. We're in a head. One, one step back yep. in a proposal. So a client has a design problem. They send out an RFP, a request for proposals, and then freelancers like Adam prepare some kind of package, which is a proposal in response to the request for proposals. And what I think you're talking about is what that response looks like. That, that's how it looks like an adult world. Um, but often it's not like that at all. Um, sometimes I'll give you a crazy example. I was working at, uh, working in a building. I didn't have a great relationship with the, uh, the, um, the landlord was actually the landlord's son who was running it. Uh, we were in the elevator together one day. Uh, and he tells me that he's launching a, a news magazine in Toronto, uh, a website's coming up. Um, and he, he showed me something. He asked me what I thought. And I th- said, it is all right. But I wasn't sure about some of the design there. And he's like, yeah, he feels the same way. And, and uh, he's like, well, do you want to come like, take some more look at it? I was like, sure. So I, I didn't go into my office. I went to his. We looked at it some more. And he showed me some historical examples of the intellectual property that he was buying into. And I was, you know, I was very fond of them. I was like, this is what you should be doing. This looks much better. And we can, you know, maybe like you should, yeah get someone to do that, et cetera. And he's like, well, you want to do it sort of thing. And I was like, sure, when you have in mind. And they're like, you know, this was like a Thursday. And like, well, you know, we launch Monday sort of thing. And um, that's real. Like that stuff actually happens. And, you know, within, uh, within minutes, I've got a job. <laughs> and uh, I did a, a two-day uncredited um, behind-the-scenes emergency rebrand of this magazine before it launched. So when I say proposals, sometimes there's not much of a process there, but I think it's your job as a professional designer and to protect yourself to put on the brakes, no matter how exciting or fortuitous or whatever is happening, and, and make sure you get that proposal document done properly to make sure you set expectations, um, even if it's uh, you know really just two guys talking in an elevator and then going up to the desk and complaining about stuff together. If anything, Adam, it's more important to do that. Would you agree? Because you were just two guys. Yeah, uh, sure. Why not? I, you're probably right. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, maybe. Anyways, no, I, I, you know, I, I, th- I think I think you're right. I wanted to get back to the proposal <laughs> thing. So detail everything you're going to do best that you can. And it's a real tricky thing to do because they don't want to read a lot. OK, what they want to do. <laughs> is they want to skim to that back page where you've got the fee schedule and they already have a number in their mind and they want to make sure it's below that number. And if they like you and it's below that number, they're going to sign and go for it most likely. Okay. What your job is as a designer is to impress upon them that it is not a logo for $2,000. That is not what we're doing here. What we're doing is we're going to have a one hour meeting I'm going to find out about um, your current competitors and where you hope the business to be in five years. I'm going to do uh, market research on that. I'm going to come up with some concepts. We're going to do a 30-minute meeting on it. From there, I'm going to give you three um, sort of uh, early drafts. These are going to, these might be very ugly. They might peel, be unappealing to you, but they'll indicate sort of ideas that we can talk about um, from there, blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm not going to prattle on and on. 
but you, you want to impress on them exactly what they're going to get, that you're not just going mm-hmm. to disappear and give them something that it's all based on something and that it mm-hmm. takes time and that it's time well spent. Make it very clear, like one, one, okay, one fear that they're a client has, particularly a new client, new business, no monies, never worked with a designer. Here's, here's their fear. My designer's going to give it to me and I'm going to hate it and I'm going to have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do to make sure that does not happen to them? What in your process is going to prevent that from happening? And even if your process is damn perfect, what are you going to do perception-wise so they don't feel like that might happen to them to give them confidence? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you want a transparent process and you want to make it very clear. At, at this phase, You know, if, if you don't like any of these, um, we can start over, but you might also suggest that, you know, if, if we're starting over at this phase, perhaps we have a communication problem or something. Um, you, there's a saying something about good fences make good neighbors. And I, I believe that very strongly with proposals. You want to get a lot of stuff out of the way with, and you want to get their attention. Mm-hmm. Design your proposal well, make it easy to read good looking because they really want to flip to the end and make sure the number's lower than the number they were hoping for. You want to get them to read it. You want to appeal to them to make sure they understand that it's in both of your best interest. And you want to make sure that you're pricing out a process. If I, if I can um, continue the, the magic bean metaphor, which I'm just growing to love more and more, here are the magic beans. This is how we will nourish them and this is how they will grow. And you and I together will water them and work these stalks through the lattice so that it becomes and takes the form of something that we can be proud of and something that will work. <laughs> I'm so tempted to get nitpicky with the errors in your analogy, but instead, I'm, I, I, no surprise. Instead, I'm going to jump on something else you said, the together, the nourish. I've, I haven't said any of yeah. that. You, you just interjected all that. Well, actually, you didn't quite use the term, you want the client to be invested. But I know that you were somehow saying you want to demystify and you want the client to accept what's going on. And the best way to do that is just to get them involved in the process. You're reading stuff that I never said, I swear, but you're totally right. And I'm going to, I want to address all that. Yeah. You're, you know, you're a young designer. You're excited. You want to get work. You want to make a name for yourself. Sometimes it can be too easy to focus too much on pleasing the client and, and getting the client and forgetting about conditioning and filtering the client to make sure it's a right fit for you. And part of the way you do that is through a pre-qualification process. So your proposal is part of that pre-qualification process. Eric, you, you, you basically said it, that by already starting a process there that they need you know, to read through and look through and engage in, um, you are sort of, in, in a way, sort of testing them and conditioning them uh, as to how this is going to work. And in my personal opinion, all the best work I've ever done has always come from clients who took me highly and were also highly involved and gave a lot of input. And the product of our work was always greater than I could have done. If they just let me do it my own designerly way, it would not have been as good as without their input. Those are the awesomest clients. Uh, you want those clients who will push you farther, who will get you to learn more, and who you can be successful for. So their business can be successful, so they can come back to you, and you can feel good about yourself, that you're, you're helping them in whatever they're doing. I, I keep using the term business, but the same applies to 
NGOs, government, whatever it is they're trying to do mm -hmm. um, to help make that more of a reality. Mm -hmm. The very first time I work with a client, I give them a, like a 15 page terms and conditions. Before I did that, I did have a couple of deadbeat clients. I have never had a deadbeat client since, but I yeah. have had clients who have gotten it and never gotten back to me. So it's um, a filter. This is going back to your use of the word filter, I think. It, this is a filter and this is a, yeah. And I, and I know this and I know that I'm going to lose some potentially good clients, but I know Adam, once, at what stage, at what stage in your career do you start doing stuff like that? I would suggest doing it from day one, but I mean, okay. I, I'm an old guy who's basically saying, don't make all the mistakes I made, do all the things I did at the end of my career when I had everything, yeah. when I was on top of everything. I mean, how unrealistic mm -hmm. is that? Just giving you food for thought and you figure out when maybe you can try to phase this stuff in or how you can scale it to yourself. And I'm not going to go through what was in those 15 pages, but things that I learned um, from, those, from those 15 pages were make sure that your conditions are reasonable, mutually beneficial, provide, um, clearly provide recourse for them if they don't like it, if it's not going well, um, what the arbitration procedure is going to be, those sorts of things. Um, make sure you're not just covering your own ass. Make sure you're protecting them too, okay? I think I'll pause there and I want to talk about getting money up front. Mm. Get money up front. A couple reasons for it. The one, you've got expenses, etc. But like, they need to be invested. You're invested. You're taking risk. They need to take risk. Don't ask for an exorbitant amount. I, I usually did 50% up front, but depending on the project and how long it's going to take, maybe you take much less. And again, you will absolutely lose some potentially decent clients by doing this but you'll protect yourselves because most of the deadbeats are people who are going to see what you're going to do and then suddenly get cold feet and walk away and never pay you. Um, they're, they're not going to pay the upfront deposit. I have to say something else here. The more people pay you, the better they'll treat you. Um, it, so your mar martini glass effect. It's completely bizarre, but yes, you're, you're completely right. But it's, it's something that I, I, I had heard, but I saw it in my career. You raise every time you raise your rates, you end up losing some clients, but you end up getting some clients, and the new clients treat you better. The new clients are are looking to spend more money because they're looking for a higher end professional, and it, it's they psychologically condition themselves. If if they're paying a high amount, are they an idiot, or are they a smart person who's hiring someone really good to do really good work with them? And people want to convince themselves that their Apple computer is worth every penny. And Eric and oh, I, man, I was just about to say that. I know I beat you to it. And Eric and I maybe <laughs> will debate that another day. But that effect is alive and well. And uh, it works with people. The less they pay you, the worse they will treat you. Because it speaks to your value, how little money you are taking and willing to work for. On the, on the high seas. But there are plenty of decent people who will treat you great on your first design jobs, everyone. Just, can we qualify that a little bit? People are good people. You don't need to be afraid of people. Um, but, you know, the, the people who rip you off, those bad experiences can, can be really dissuading and heartbreaking and let alone have, you know, serious impact on your lives sometimes. And so, yeah, I'm speaking a lot of sort of alarmist uh, language there. And of course, everyone starts off on the lower end of the pay scale. But you want to get out of that as quickly as possible. Um, and sometimes mm -hmm. that means saying no to a mm -hmm. job that you could do, um, but you're just not as sure on. 
And it's one of those weird things. You ask for a bit more money, and um, if they go for it, you're going to have more of an opportunity to do a better job, to feel good about yourself, and they're likely going to treat you better. I'm not saying they're going to treat you poorly the other ways. There's another reason that you don't want to be low paid. The lowest paid design jobs are the most competed for. Yeah. It is the worst of both worlds. It is the worst compensated and the most competitive. As quickly Mm -hmm. as possible, you want to get off the base of that pyramid floor and you want to get yourself up. Even just one rung will make a difference. Suddenly your competition pool gets smaller and it's better. It's, It's just better. And sometimes you run up against real budget constraints where you have to make a hard decision. Are you going to do this thing or not do this thing? Are you going to let this thing walk? Because they really don't have any money. It's not a statement about your worth or anything like that. They just don't have money. What do you mm-hmm. want to do? That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about clients who do have money. The, the less they're allocating to you and the more they're allocating to other people. Well, you can reasonably assume that when phone calls come in, they're going to answer first the the people that they've allocated more money to and make sure they get those answers done right. And Adam, would you say maybe this actually translates? I don't know too much about studio, but I know a lot about in-house. I feel like it's probably like not as a freelancer, as an employee, it's a similar, it's a similar paradigm. I, I really, I, I assume the same as you, Eric, but I couldn't speak to it. I mean, I came across mm-hmm. this stuff um, from psychology, actually. Uh, this mm-hmm. stuff comes from like human behavior, um, uh, mating, sex, and how we behave, etc. You can see this stuff um, over and over again um, if you look at people. I would that... love to love to write a course, design as a social science, or design as anthropology, or design as biology, something, and and the business of design, because I think that in an industry that's still selling magic beans, that I think that rabbit hole, Adam, could really make the beans more non-magical. Absolutely. I got some random tidbits I want to share that I'd like to, I hope are useful. And they all um, extend from the stuff I've already said. So I've talked about like, make sure you have like a pay rate. Um, don't don't be wishy-washy about it. Know what you're worth. Uh, Adam, so do, you, do you show that up front? Like if you have a portfolio no. webpage, no. do you put... No. no. Okay. Okay. Let, you know, I, Eric, that is one of the most common questions I get. And I, yep. yet here I am forgetting to mention it. I am so glad you just brought it up. Do not ever let your client know what you're being paid. I mean, do they show up to a meeting and be like, well, well here's my pay stubs? It, it's absurd. <laughs> it's absolutely yeah, yeah. nobody's business what you're being paid. Okay. That's, so you that's, estimate the number of hours, you yeah. multiply it by what you want to make per hour. And then you tell the client that number. You have a studio rate. Mm. The studio rate, a a component of that studio rate is paying your wage. Mm. But think of yourself as the royal we, whether you're incorporated or not. And I recommend federal incorporation because it's so gosh darn easy to do. Um, Takes 10 minutes. Absolutely. Don't don't tell people what you're making. Um, they may think it's too high. They may think it's too low and devalue. It's it's just none of their business, um, and it's a mistake I've seen many designers make. Leave that off the table. Don't talk about what uh, m- you know. You can say my rate, but I I always prefer our rate. We even if you're one person mm-hmm. to try to uh, emphasize this isn't my take home pay. This is what it costs. Yeah, um, you know, Adam, we, we didn't even get into. I see a lot of student branding, and it's always like 
Eric Forrest design and Adam Rallo design. But is that a mistake? I don't know. You're automatically unweeing yourself. I know why you're saying it, and I don't know. I, I don't know. Me the neither. I don't know. Because, because, like, what's your greatest asset as a business person? It is you. The human being is, is the most valuable thing that, that you have. So why not put that out there? I don't know. I, so I how long s- did you operate as Adam Rallo before you operated as Never. Catalyst? Never. Okay. Not, not a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Adam and I are both, there's no one right answer people. I, I think I can speak for you on that, Adam. Uh, unless so, I, uh, just unless something I say to think is. about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so what other things can we, put, can we add to this? Well, Eric was like just talking about uh, marketing and diet Pepsi and things. I don't even know what that was all about, but I could, I could imagine how that might work. Sometimes choice is a good thing. Sometimes it's good on a proposal to have, here's package A, package B, package C, which have different processes and give them the bare bones ones and make sure the bare bones is honestly bare bones. It should be unnegotiable. Anything lower than that, it's not worth your time to do or you can't do good work with less of a process. Um, the middle one should be the obvious choice for them. And then the premium one helps anchor of what a great value the middle one is. Should I restate that? Was that clear enough, Eric, what I'm saying there? Um, it is, but I'm familiar with that, with that pricing model. So you're not, you're not, or you are familiar. Okay. I, let's talk a little bit about this. Okay. I learned this while working with the restaurant industry and I should be careful what I say here, but no, I've got enough restaurant clients that it doesn't say who says, who's told me what. I'm also a restaurant. So maybe that's why I know it too. All right. What I learned in restaurant menu engineering was oh, that yeah. most, another thing most, we could have a course on. Yes. Most of the time, the most expensive item on that menu um, isn't actually meant to be sold. They have it. They can make Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And as I've heard many restaurant insiders say, asshole doctors who are out on a date can order it to impress their date. But outside of that, what its role is, is to make what they want you to order seem like a really good value. And often, I, I if I can just if I can just interject, so in the automotive industry, they call it the halo car. Chevrolet doesn't care about selling Corvettes; they want to sell a Corvette so the Camaro looks like a deal, and so on. Yep, that's exactly it. Detour, yeah. detour over. The point is, if you're going to give um, uh, options on a proposal, don't overdo it, and mm-hmm. I suggest using anchoring, where the high one makes the middle one look like a good value, and the bottom one is really and truly your bottom and you should know what your bottom is you should know when you have to say no mm. you know what your deal breakers are what your minimums are etc and then when you're faced with them you say no and you follow through because when your rational brain was thinking you already thought this out and you know that that has to be a no um and one of them is you you put a real minimum package there and anything below that you just can't you can't do you can't do a good job you won't feel good about it Let's say you don't do that. Let's say you just give them one package. You say, this is, this is what we recommend for you. This is what we're going to be doing as a process. Now, let's say they come back to you and they're like, you know, this all sounds pretty good, but going to be honest with you, we didn't want to spend any more than 4000 That's a hard limit for us. Mm-hmm. And let's say you've quoted 5000 You don't say, all right, we'll take 4000 The moment you do that, you've gone back to revealing yourself as a magic bean salesman. How, how could the same work for 5000 also cost 4000 it's impossible. Right. What you do is you go back into that proposal and you find stuff to trim. 
you're like, mm -hmm. okay, on this round, we're going to only be able to do two concepts, okay? Even mm -hmm. if it's BS, there has to be a correlation for them. You need to preserve that everything has value, that you aren't a magic bean salesman, and you need to make modifications and remove some stuff to get it down to 4000 for them if you want to do the job, and that's their hard limit. Even if you'd be damn well willing to jump at 4000 you've already set a standard. Don't undermine yourself. Mm -hmm. Now you revise components, remove components, okay? That's so smart because there's nothing stopping you from actually doing all the work you intended to do for five grand. You just have to make sure that they don't feel like they've taken a thousand dollars off the price and gotten the exact same level of service because that devalues your industry. There is no negotiating on rates. Right. It's only scope of project. That is the only negotiable. So something else I'll add to that, you know, as a footnote, you might also even consider to pad your process with a bit that you know you could cut if you had to. Some nice to haves that aren't need to haves as far as you're concerned. Mm -hmm. Possible next steps. How else could you scope this into other print media? How could you scope this into digital media? More expensive paper, like that kind of thing, Adam? Or Well, for me, usually it would have to do with uh, extra rounds of revisions or okay. extra concepts more than we need. Um, okay. You know what? I saw Staff and Sagmeister speak uh, many years ago, and uh, there someone asked him in the audience, like, how uh, how many concepts do you usually show on a job? And he's like, one. And the audience was like, shock and awe, like we could never get away with that. And then he also said something that, like, you know, and after about the third round of revisions, we usually just say, okay, well, that's enough. Like, you're just not going to like it, sort of thing. And I remember sitting in that audience and hearing people <laughs> be like, that's ridiculous. But I got to be honest with you, that's what I usually did. I usually present right. one concept. I only need one concept to get it right. Um, right. I often found it a waste. In my personal opinion, I know my entire industry generally has a different practice. But I often mm -hmm. find like these sort of three concepts to be a waste. I usually right. aim for just one. And not what even, I would uh, Not even at a very, very rough level. Th th this is how I would work. And I'm not advocating this, okay? I'm just saying this is how I worked. I would rather give the client one concept and say, here's your concept, love it. And have it in the contract that if they don't love it, then we'll start right over, right there and then. We'll do a brand new concept from scratch, not a modification, like completely new. Um, mm. Revisit our assumptions, where did we go wrong, mm. et cetera. Now that's not to say that we develop one concept. We develop stacks of concepts in-house, always. Of course. But when we know that this one meets everything is testing the best is is the best we don't want to show something that we we don't want them to pick got it yeah yeah because you know i get it like all that work so you would have shown them three concepts they would have picked one instead you show them the one you want them to pick and then if they say i don't like it it actually doesn't cost you anything because you have all that process work all those other options that you discarded they're still there they're still there right and this also gives you another negotiable on your contract where it looks so great to them because they're like, oh, wow, if I, if I hate it, I get something else. And it's like, yes, I know that usually I can nail it um, on the second concept. That's the <laughs> norm for me. The first one ends up being a um, the first one I found for me would end up calling out all the things that we never said that we should have said, but we didn't realize we weren't saying that calls it out all out. And generally, the second one is usually a home run where they're like, that's mm -hmm. it. Perfect. And then from there, it's just uh, revising it. 
Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if you have three rounds, if you know that you can usually hit, hit it out of the park on a second concepts, you know, put a third round in, in your in your proposal if you want something to cut. Another thing we need to address before I go um, is uh, cheap work, free work, friends. Yeah, please. Family. Please do. My, my generic advice when someone asks, should I do this project for my uncle? Is no, just don't. Just don't do it. I understand the impulse and I have worked with family members. And um, it's too much of a risk. You really want to risk a familial relationship over a business deal gone sour. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. worth it. Yeah, here's, here's what I'm always afraid of, of doing free work for a family friend, is that, that they may be like, thanks, and think that they got like something okay out of what you did when you put in $2,000 worth of labor. Like, that was no small gift. That, that was a piece of expensive jewelry you just got them as a gift. And, and they don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. And... So here's, here's what I'm going to say to address that. Just give it away. Don't give it away with any expectation. Don't give it away with an expectation that at Christmas they're going to get you something nice or they're going to help you with your backyard. Give it away out of, out of your heart is because you purely want to just give it away and you're totally okay with never getting praise, respect, gratitude, nothing in return. You're just purely giving it away the way you would give someone a hug because you want to give them a hug. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, my my uncle has gave me some investment advice, and he said if you ever want to buy stock, you should already be at peace with having lost your your principal investment. If you can't be at peace with having lost the money, you should not buy the stock. And it's like if you can't be at peace with giving this away, the design work, you shouldn't do it. I agree. Yep. Okay. So what about not family and friends? What about clients who can't afford it? What about charities that you deem? to be worthwhile or interesting opportunities, et cetera, where, you know, all the other stuff I've said, you just can't make it line up. Here's what I recommend. Always, always, always bill the full amount, give them an invoice with the full amount, and then give them a credit to that shows the discount. Make sure it's clear to them uh, that what they just received, that they spent $1,000 on was actually $2,000 worth of services um, that you've made a one-time contribution of $1,000. If they're a registered charity, see if you can actually do this uh, with an in-kind donation um, where the full mm. amount is billed and then you make a donation, um, so on, uh, to offset their costs. If you can, it's a difficult thing to do and you might need to talk to your accountant on how to pull that off. Um, that I, Yeah, please don't take so it. I hire an accountant and, I, and he, he handles all that kind of stuff for me. So Adam, I think what you're saying is the work costs two grand, this nonprofit pays you the $2,000 and then you donate it back. If you can, um, it can be very tricky to do at a bare minimum, at least write on the receipt on the invoice that it costs two grand and you're making an in-kind donation of two grand at a bare minimum. But if you can see if you can actually properly make a charitable donation um, in kind, Um, that can be possible in some circumstances, but again, Consult your lawyer and accountant. Oh, get an accountant as soon as you incorporate. Oh, if you incorporate. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So in, in Ontario, everyone, it's, there's like different levels. Um, there's a sole proprietorship. There's incorporated. There's another one, Adam. Is it joint proprietorship? Don't, yeah. 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 And I don't want to get into, I just, I'm just going to say some verbal things so that people are aware of this this is not financial advice this is not legal advice um in canada like whether or not you bill hst 
depends on how much you bill for the year, which is over $30,000, whether or not you're a sole proprietorship or whether or not you're incorporated or whether whether or not you're a tax number as a business is a whole other episode. Yeah, absolutely. Just be aware of those things. I'll say that before I was billing more than 30,000 a year, I did not charge HST and I put that income on my T1 when I submitted my taxes and there was never an issue. So there's that, but this is not financial advice. Understood. Yeah. And my advice is get an HST number. Once you're serious about things, regardless if you're over the 30,000 small supplier limitation, um, it makes you look more serious and you are serious to take your, I think it's part of taking yourself seriously. And, um, you know, generally the reason you're supposed to get it and do it is because it, it, it can be really worth your while collecting tax for the government and getting your own HST deductions. But again, consult your accountant. Why I say you should get an accountant is because mine has paid for himself many times over. Once you incorporate, because corporate taxes are more complex, I wouldn't even bother just get an accountant, you, usually a good one, you only need to deal with like once a year, but you can call them if you got a question. But um, Accountants, they sell edible beans. Yeah. But uh, as for the, um, the charitable work, um, the donations, hopefully you can see uh, where I'm going with that and how it connects to everything else as far as anchoring your value, make sure they know, um, make sure you're not setting in their head that you're a charity or that you are actually a low-end designer that they can see, oh, this is a nice invoice with a high number on it. This is a professional. Mm -hmm. Um, And this professional has decided to make this. And make sure they understand that up front. If you're doing them a sweet deal, Mm -hmm. get get some creative control. Mm -hmm. Like, like see what else you can bargain for. And and you'll be surprised what you can bargain for. I I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but one time, uh, a place couldn't pay me the amount I wanted. And they let me use their art galleries, my own personal office, and gave me a computer there. Like... You'd be shocked. And it got your career started. Yeah, you'd be shocked at like what you can get done sometimes when there isn't money. Just because there isn't enough money doesn't mean there aren't other things that can make it worthwhile for everyone. Be open to some of those weird, unexpected uh, arrangements, particularly when you're starting out. They're risky, but it's certainly better than doing a cut rate work uh, to do cut rate work with intangible bonuses, whether or not those are seen through. Thank you so much. No problem. You take care. Talk to you later.